Welcome, everyone. We are back with episode two of Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric. I'm Nat from uh, Frontier Musicology Radio Hour and Evil Island. So in the first episode, we watched one of the old, old silent movies uh, from 1918, Tarzan of the Apes. And to follow that up, we were going to watch the sequel that came out in 1918, The Romance of Tarzan. We we definitely picked poorly. We did pick poorly. You want to, Nat, you want to tell people what the problem with that was? It doesn't exist anymore, I guess, is the quick version. Uh, it is a lost film. It is, it is simply no longer a thing that humanity has stored or recorded anywhere. I am by no means a film expert. I make a lot of mistakes uh, when it comes to the history of film. And uh, this podcast is kind of more an appreciation of film. And so, uh, yeah, my bad. I thought that this film actually existed. (laughs) After Um, searching high and low, we found that uh, it doesn't, as far as anyone knows. So if, and if I can just say like, I'm really glad it doesn't because I'm guessing it wasn't too different from the other film. And, and what we watched was actually a, a much more sophisticated film. It was a much better film as films go. I've heard that in the, in the romance of Tarzan, he actually goes to the old West. (laughs) God, now I'm really curious again. Like now I would love, Never mind. Maybe someday it will be found. Um, Where does he swing from? Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know. Um, does does he yodel and like a whole bunch of aardvarks come out of it nowhere or like like how does that even work? So on this show we try to avoid spoilers of endings, even if they're old films, because people haven't may not have seen them, and I try to focus on just one film at a time, so people don't have to know everything about all these films or can pick up you know, join us at any time, but we're going to be referring back to that film a bunch in this one. Okay. We'll do our traditional question about what media have you been consuming this week? This is where we talk about what other stuff, not necessarily related to the topic at hand we have been watching. That is often of a historical nature, but can be, you know, the latest episode of, Gossip Girl or whatever's on. <laughs> anyway, Nat, what have you been watching lately? Um, I have been watching live streams of the Minneapolis riots, which have now spread to be everywhere. And you and I are both of the same era. We are both of the same. We were told by the old people that the re- the, tele- the revolution would not be televised. And let me tell you, it is being hella televised. Like, there is no less than, like, 20 different sources of absolutely instantly available information at any given moment, and it's amazing. Yeah, I uh, I watched about a day's worth out of it, and then I got to the point where I just couldn't watch it anymore because I won't say that I'm a film snob, but it gets really hard to watch people's cell phone video in portrait mode instead of landscape and like them shooting themselves instead of what I want to be seeing over there. You, you should start a filmmaker fund that just sends 
the little the little portrait or the little uh, the landscape mode stabilizers oh, to yeah. people like you could do an emergency relief fund that just sent three axis gimbals that only fit the phone horizontally you know and these are a few bucks on amazon you know it's like yeah. you got this super expensive iphone that's capable of shooting really awesome like, video and audio without any attachments no attached microphone no and yeah and and then you hold I can, it i can like... hear the police's order clearly <laughs> over your your stock microphone it's amazing you have i just had to watch what an hour and a half of Tarzan from 1932, and let me tell you, you have more film studio in your pocket than Hollywood had a hundred years ago. Just turn it sideways. That's all I'm saying. Please, that'd be awesome. I also saw some things about how to safely video the police, and as we know from like uh, CNN crews getting arrested and stuff like that, the, all those tips are pointless. As as a former, you know, uh, news reporter, I can tell you there is no safe way uh, to do it. Like, oh, I if... didn't know this was a trick question. What's the safest <laughs> way to ski? Don't ski. Like, this yeah. is exactly. <laughs> you, there is no safe way to do it. You have to be willing to know that the only safe way to do it is to do it from such a distance that it's not known that you're doing it. And in which case, nobody wants to see that, you know, yeah. unless you've got a telephoto lens and a really good camera, you know. If they know you're filming them, yep. you always run the risk of they don't want you filming them. And in which case, if the cops don't want you doing something, regardless of whether there's a law in place or not, they're, they're going to stop you. Exactly. And your camera may or may not survive that encounter. <laughs> Truth. But I will say we're in this golden age where flash memory will. Like, if they return it to you, the recording itself will be fine. Your film doesn't get exposed anymore. Like, you at least get the recording. I did see the, um, so speaking of professional video, I thought it was really amazing. The satellite feed with the CNN camera when that crew was arrested was still rolling the whole time. Yeah. And the after it was set on the ground, some of the footage it got while it was just sitting on the ground was amazing. Look, I and I do recordings, and I get mad when people get famous for, like, really amazingly stupid shit. But you've got to be mad after all the time in film school. After all the time working in video production, if a camera sat on a ground by a sheriff's officer can get a more amazing shot than you are famous for, isn't that just a little discouraging? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I saw, I got to see um, Werner Herzog, the oh. documentary filmmaker, um, yeah. talking about um, Grizzly Man, a, a screening of Grizzly Man, which if you don't know is is a documentary about uh, a guy who loved grizzly bears and followed them in the wild and then was killed and eaten by grizzly bears. <laughs> um, but uh, he was documenting the grizzly bears himself. And then he, he'd sometimes set the camera down, but leave it rolling um, while he went to adjust something. And everything was super, everything that he intentionally shot was super overproduced. Like it was way too uh, contrived and set up, but Herzog actually ended up using some of the footage in his movie <laughs> that the guy shot accidentally saying, you know, that, that he had this strange ability to capture some amazing stuff when he wasn't trying to capture stuff at all. You know, <laughs> I, and, and to be clear, 
A, it's good to have a superpower. It's good to have one thing you're really good at. And B, if it's a thing you're good at, maybe it's better to die before you find out you were really good at accidentally taking good video. You know, maybe maybe that's a critique he wouldn't have warmly accepted while he was alive, before being killed by grizzly bears, but now in death, he's got all of this amazing footage. Right. Uh, so I myself watched that until I couldn't watch it anymore. And then I needed something to cleanse the palate, so I watched The Naked Gun, which I hadn't <laughs> seen in forever. What I needed a hell to see of a shift. Well, you know, I needed to see cops in a different yep. light, you know, and um Oh I don't even know if I want to get into the naked gun. <laughs> <laughs> we could we let's we'll make a promise between you and I right now at some point the naked gun will be the focus of a podcast that seems like a perfectly like dead center target for us. Uh we might do so. Um, I'll just say that, in my opinion, Zaz, as they're known, the producers, Zucker, Abram, Zucker, um, they they only made one film that really works for me, that really, that I find outstanding. I'm not a huge broad comedy fan, slapstick fan, any of that stuff, but Airplane um, was, that's kind of their blue chip gold standard. And it holds up again and again and again. A lot of the other stuff they've done hasn't. And and I got to say that that what I found funniest in um, The Naked Gun, speaking of unintentional consequences or, or getting stuff you didn't in, intend to, my... <laughs> Okay, I'm going to talk about it. Now that now that we've opened up, can of worms opened up. Um, it's go for it. There's only one gag that ever really like made me laugh, even the first time I watched it, out laugh out loud. And that's uh, Priscilla Presley is up on a ladder, and uh, you know Leslie Nielsen is looking up, and she's wearing a short skirt, you know, and he says, "Nice beaver." And she's like, thanks, I just had it stuffed. And then she hands down a taxidermied beaver, right? <laughs> I don't know why, but that line always made me laugh. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of intellectual humor. Like, I, yeah, I get it. But when I went back and watched it again, that was the only joke. With one exception, the whole plot of the film is his partner goes on a stakeout by himself and, like, finds out about this drug deal the drug dealers shoot him and he's in the hospital and like he can barely talk. And like they, the mystery is they got to figure out who did this to him. Do you remember who his partner was? Was it Dan Aykroyd? Am I remembering correctly? It was not Dan Aykroyd. It was not Dan Aykroyd. It was OJ Simpson. Whoa. And a lot of the, the lines in it, which weren't supposed to be jokes were like, who would want to kill him? <laughs> you know? And like, what a great guy, and, you know? And I'm like laughing my ass off at the unintended stuff that made it in there that when you go back and watch it and you're thinking they're talking about OJ Simpson here, you know, it's just like, but let's get to the topic at hand. I am very excited about this. Because we could not watch the romance of Tarzan from 1918 um, I hopped us ahead four or five Tarzans. All right. So this, this next Tarzan 
was uh, Tarzan the Ape Man from 1932. And it starred uh, Johnny Weissmuller as uh, Tarzan. Johnny Weissmuller was the, uh, like the fifth person, fourth, fifth, maybe even sixth person to play Tarzan. Um, But, uh, and he did something very different. Now, um, Johnny Weissmuller was a, a swimmer, an Olympic swimmer. Do you know, do you know this about him? I did. I did. That's I like, look, I have a very tiny amount of 1932 cinema trivia at my fingertips. And that was it. Like, yeah, he was already famous by the time they did this. And which is probably good for reasons I'll get into here. So we just talked about OJ Simpson and I have often believed that there are certain other people that should not be cast in major roles, uh, certain other types of celebrities. And one of them is sports stars um, because they're inevitably just really bad actors unless there are cast in a role where they're playing that sport. So, you know, Michael Jordan in Space Jam. Okay. Shaquille O'Neal as a genie. Yeah, no, not so good. You know, that kind of thing. Um, I feel the same way about supermodels, pro wrestlers, rock stars, hip hop artists, you know, I'm going to differ with you on pro wrestlers because I argue pro wrestling is its own form of theater, but we can, we can go past that. Let's let's, I don't want to, let's concede that for the moment and promise to revisit it at some point. But, uh, yeah, people who aren't actors are terrible actors as a rule, as a rule, but, um, they can sometimes bring something else to the table and the, the one of the sort of the the prototypical example of this is Arnold Schwarzenegger, yeah. who was a, a bodybuilder, right? Not a great actor, but in the beginning, he took a lot of roles like Conan and The Terminator, which literally didn't require him to speak much at all. And um, and as we know from um, Tarzan of the Apes. Young Tarzan teaches himself to read and speak and all of that perfect English, you know. <laughs> and wear pants, which I'm still, still the point where my suspension of disbelief just crumbled. Like, why the hell pants? Of all the Western innovations that you would pick up, pants. Pants. Well, the thing is, let's admit, one of the problems with Elmo Lincoln that I didn't mention last time is that his body just didn't look like a guy that grew, grew up in the jungle, right? Yeah. And uh, one of the people that played Tarzan after Elmo Lincoln was James Pierce, who was Edgar Rice Burroughs' son-in-law. Oh, wow. Who was also a center uh, for uh, IU, Indiana University's football team. So I think that that's where they first got the idea of let's cast rugged sports heroes in this role because after him was Buster Crab, who was an Olympic gold medal swimmer, you know? And then I think what someone said was, well, Buster Crab is great, but the real guy when it comes to Olympic gold swimming is Johnny Weissmuller, who at that time had won five gold medals, had a bronze medal, um, competed uh, supposedly was never defeated. Probably the greatest swimmer in history, competitive swimmer in history, because he's he was never defeated in 
60 some uh events he also uh he he also did won a award for water polo um he set countless records i mean countless swimming records now they've all been beaten since then but that's true in every sport right yeah um uh but but the one thing that um the one way that that either the script was written or Weissmuller chose to play this part, which I think was very wise, was to have Tarzan not really speak very much. Yep. Which both makes sense for the character who grew up without anyone teaching him to talk and, you know, all that stuff or very little um, communication, verbal communication. And doesn't require him to act as much with through his or, or uh through his line delivery well no there's still the physical a- actions which he's good at well and let me let me counter what you said earlier because the weird part to me is that in 1932 we're still watching people that are doing this like it is acting but it's this post vaudevillian acting it is this post like victorian style acting it is stage acting at like 50%, right? Like they do the big sweeping gestures and the, the things you can hear clearly in the back row, but then they get a little quieter and it's more conversation. It's not this romantic acting that we get into later. It's not this ultra realistic acting that we see today. It is this kind of, I don't want to say melodrama, but it is melodrama. And so when you've got a cast of people who are, again, the transit, the mid-Atlantic accent and that stage acting kind of mannerism. And then you've got Johnny Weissbuehler. From where I stand in the modern day, they are both equidistant from what I would consider present acting. The difference is smaller. And I, I get where you're coming from. But yeah, it always it seems a little weird to me now that everybody is doing. And then of course there's entire leagues of extras who are just cast on body type, who. The the distance is smaller in regards to what, you said the distance is smaller. The distance from good actor in 1932 and bad actor in 1932. Is smaller from each other than it is from what I would consider. Proper acting technique today. Like, okay. both of them seem further removed from what I would consider moving today, if that makes sense. And I and I like it. I love watching this, and I love... But there is that transition period at the beginning where I have to kind of reset my expectations subconsciously for yeah. how the characters are going to act. So everybody acts! You know, yeah. what was the, the, the uh, John Lovitz character on Saturday Night Live? I am an actor! Door, you know, is, and like... It is exactly that. And like, granted, they're only a few years remo- removed from when that was literally the only kind of acting. And at this point, nobody even thought to act in the films. They still, if you wanted to be an actor in 1930, you wanted to be in the theater. And movie acting was a very specialized thing. It was just now, I think, becoming the giant, you know, phenom that kids would aspire to do. So they hadn't really recognize this language of film where like the person's face is huge and they can hear you. They're only that far, you know, you need to tone it down because they're like the back of the house 
is the same for everybody. There's very little difference between the front and the back of the house in a movie theater, you know? Subtlety is discouraged. Like, a little smile doesn't... It, it, it would have worked just fine in 32, but a little smile is useless on the stage. So a little, little quirky raise one corner of the lip doesn't happen. So yeah, everything is big. Everything is over the top. And... They're still doing that here. But, but again, that being said, my God, this was a masterpiece compared to the last one. Like, it was so much better. And I also want to bring up, by this point in 1932, they realized, okay, we can't turn the entire book or the entire first half of the Tarzan book into a movie, right? They got this idea that they just want to take part of it out. What's the part that would fill an hour and a half and we can tell a good story about so they really zoomed in on, I don't know, something filmable, something relatable. And I like that. Yeah. I So I'm still very early in, in I'm still reading the book and I'm still very early in the book. But um, the, the thing about the book is Jane um, does not appear in the book until way late in the book, almost halfway through the book or something like that. And, and, it's the, it's a lot about Tarzan and Jane is later introduced with this movie. They did the opposite. Yeah. It's really more Jane's story. It starts out with Jane and it's fairly far into the film before Tarzan makes an appearance, um, which yep. I, I thought was interesting. It's not Edgar Rice, Bur the way Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote it. And it's sure. definitely does not stay particularly true to the book story wise. Um, and some people can, can um, probably blast it for that. But in almost every other way, this is better, you yeah. know? And in fact, after this, I, I, I take notes while I watch these. Like when we want to talk about this, I, I, I pause, I rewind, I take notes, I write down things. But I went all the way back to the beginning of my notes just to write down the phrase, damsel in distress meets post-colonial hubris. Because that, that's what this was. That's what the, 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 I mean, think about this. The, this was just about Jane. This was a Jane film. It, it followed her from the beginning all the way through to the end. It was about her choices, her decisions. Um, it was how she affected the things around it. But they even, they even toned down the overt colonialism references. Like even the idea that they are looking for the elephant graveyard just to find this giant resource of ivory, this giant field of ivory that it wouldn't hurt anybody to take, right? Like, oh, we don't have to strip mine a mountain. We don't have to send locals into a mine or anything. It's, it's just there. It's just waiting for white people to bring it home and sell it and make a lot of money. Um, even that is a kinder version of everybody than it was in the other film. It's uh. true. I will say that, um, you know, um, James Parker and, and Harry Holt, the two guys who are, are the colonial, the colonials, the white colonials, uh, they're still dicks. Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, and actually, if I can refer to my other notes in this film, the colonial, the colonialists at least learned the language 
They only used it to give commands, but they at least knew how to talk to people. Well, Uh, it seemed like there was at least the beginnings of some um, awareness that the colonial colonialism was not a, not entirely a good thing. Yeah. You know, I mean, there are times when it's totally over their head where they're just shooting hippos left and right. You know? Dude, no, there are times like, okay. So Jane gets off the boat, right. And they're in the jungle and then they have to do this exposition shot where they're talking about the different tribes of people that live in the area already. And they're literally cutting from like, Oh, here they are in the desert with these herders. Like, look at these, look at these natives who are pushing, who are taking goats everywhere. They are one of the tribes of people we talked to. And it's literally just the actors walking in front of, I don't think it, it wasn't a green screen at the time. Maybe they were just projecting it. I don't know. Yep. But then suddenly they're in the Serengeti and it's a totally different tribe of people in. Oh, and this is the other tribe that we are working. Like it, it was completely, it was still completely oblivious of the fact that these are cultures from thousands of miles away and completely different biomes and completely different like cultures and everything. They didn't get it. Right. But it was still better. Well, <laughs> I, I think it was better in most ways, but not all. And in let me explain when it comes to that um, in front of a screen. So um, one thing that, that I sort of praised uh, Tarzan of the Apes for overbirth of a nation was that in birth of a nation you had extras playing blacks that were white people in blackface which is really like really amping up the racism there um whereas with uh, tarzan of the apes which was filmed in louisiana they actually hired extras african-americans to play africans okay now the betrayal may have still been a little bit racist uh, but um what they did do is they hired black people to play black people yeah and they actually paid them a decent wage it was like um um a dollar and a half or something um in in 1918 which adjusted for inflation is pretty much kind of what Hollywood pays mass extras today, you know, um, like 30 to 50 bucks, you know, (laughs) to just be a body there, you know, um, you know, it's, it's scales up to like 150 or something if you're a featured extra, but basically if you're just there to eat the food, you know, and hang out on set, uh, hang out, you know, and you're just in a big crowd shot, if they even do it anymore, a lot of it's digital or whatever. Um, I was on a film that used inflatable extras. Um, they were literally inflatable people. <laughs> Can we just, I, I just need a moment to process the phrase inflatable extras. Mm-hmm. Like, like yep. did they pop out of a can? No. You just like push a foot pedal and they just. No, it was a crowd shot and they had um, blow up people dressed in, in cut. And you didn't need to see their face because it was like way off crowd shot you know um so they didn't actually have faces or anything they were just blow up humans in 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 clothes um but tarzan of the apes had african-americans playing africans which is a little bit better the this movie tarzan the ape man um did it in three different ways 
and to different degrees of success. One was to get footage yep. from Africa, which they then projected on a screen. And in the first time we talked about B-roll and how like they, you know, um, used B-roll of animals. Well, in this, they did that with humans. And then they had the people acting in front of a screen that it was projected on, rear projected, which totally didn't work most of the time. It worked uh, in a few places, but a lot of the times like the scale was off and you could yeah. tell that they were standing in front of a, a, a projection instead of that. But it was the, in terms of, the racism angle or whatever they were actually using African tribal people to represent themselves. So yeah. that was the best possible situation. The second situation was to have African-Americans cast as Africans. And that's where was their porters and the people that went on the expedition to the elephant graveyard with them. Yep. Still pretty good. And then the worst was they did resort to blackface uh, toward the end, could, 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 and this can we hold on, <laughs> off on that? I don't want to ruin okay. anything. Like, okay, we'll I, hold off on that. I was it... blown away on like four different levels by that. <laughs> like, <laughs> we're both laughing because we both know what's coming up. But let's, yeah, we'll leave that. But that was the, in my opinion, uh, where they went back could... to the old blackface, and we'll get to that. All right, so let's back all the way back up to the start okay. here, and and let's start going through your notes. I did have one kind of, and I realized this was contrived. I realized I, I don't even think the elephant graveyard was part of the original story. I think it was an adaptation for film that was easier to explain visually. Like, oh, we're trying to find this vast amount of wealth. Nobody even questions that, and it moves the story forward, right? But then they go to find it, and the elephant graveyard is apparently on a plateau up this tiny path up in the mountains. How the fuck do elephants get there? Exactly. Like, how the fuck? Like, <laughs> how the fuck? Like, like, if humans are falling off the cliff, what chance does an elephant, especially, <laughs> especially an African elephant, right? It's, like, not, it's not just that humans are falling off the cliff. It's that they have to go single file on this path that, that that's backed barely... up against the rock like and, yeah exactly and and in fact that was a great scene by the way i like that was one of the few times where i was like actually on the edge of my seat that that was one of the few times i thought that they really captured some suspense yeah but yeah how does an elephant now i can only assume that there's some back entrance for elephants. <laughs> the, the cargo bay like, like something like we could go this big wide path that the elephants take from the other side, you know, but, but, but instead we're going to take the human route, which yeah. is, <laughs> yeah, it, I, 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 it, I had problems with it, I guess, but again, not the worst, not the, not the biggest. It, it just didn't make sense to me and it still doesn't, which apparently once you climb up to the top of this plateau, there's a river full of dangerous animals. So, okay, they're fording this river and there's hippopotamuses there. They would tell them, oh, look out, and they would raise their rifle and then they would shoot, right? They're filming the white people shooting and then they cut to a hippopotamus in the river, but the only footage they had of the hippopotamus thrashing around 
was two hippopotamuses fighting. So they would shoot at them, and then suddenly they were fighting. And, like, I get that was the only... That was the closest video they had to it. That was the closest thing they could splice together to kind of make sense. But it confused me, again, from the modern standpoint, that they would shoot one hippo, but then two of them were fighting for some reason. Okay, that I didn't notice as much. And yeah. it didn't bother me quite as much because what really shocked me from a modern perspective of watching that is that, you know hippos are endangered species now right and it's like watching this from a modern can you imagine a modern film where they're like okay we gotta cross that river full of hippopotamuses get your guns out let's just mass kill as many hippos as we can because we gotta get over there (laughs) can we just can we just point out like none of the rules guaranteeing animal welfare existed at this point like i kind of watch this with the it may have been cheaper to just actually shoot hippopotamuses. <laughs> like well, I they, couldn't tell. No. Well, then that then they did a good job with special effects because they were never on the same stage with hippos. Or okay. what happened was they used the projection method, like we talked about with the African tribes. So they're like in a boat or whatever, but the what they're looking at is a projection of a hippo. And, and I remember specifically after they landed, the one scene where I could not tell um, because they had gotten up onto land and the hippos had started to follow them. And then you hear the iconic Tarzan yell and the hippos back off. And I could not tell. Like, so, hey, 90-year-old special effects props to that guy because that worked out so well. And then I think what they did to enhance it for... Um, for both crocodiles and for hippos is they had some fake ones in the in a water yeah. on a set that they had mostly submerged. And this right. was more successful with the hippos than it was with the crocs. And they just uh, pushed them along under the water, you know, like, like the mechanical jaws, basically, except for it was just like... And, um, like yeah. when somebody would get dragged into the water off the raft... Um, you would you could tell very clearly like oh here Bob put your leg in this mechanical hippo we'll we'll pull you ten feet like that wasn't that whatever it was really good for the time that was a hundred years ago like yeah so they had some animals on set like zebras and elephants obviously elephants he rides an elephant um you know again it's an Indian elephant not an African elephant yeah, but. I, I know nothing about elephants and I spotted that because it was only like, what, nine feet, not even nine feet tall. It was probably like eight, nine feet. I don't know. And of course, cheetah, the the chimp is is a real chimp. And and so they had some real animals, but a lot of it was um, projected footage. This is this is interesting. A little interesting piece of trivia. The guy that the director of this film, who was uh, W.S. Van Dyke. He shot another film the year before this, which was another jungle action film called Traitor Horn. Which I, I have, saw that mentioned when I was looking up things for this. I haven't seen Traitor Horn, but it's also supposed to be pretty good. And he just took the footage of the he took the B-roll footage of the animals and reused it in Tarzan. And I think that this film vastly benefits from that. Like, they've made it past the hippos. They've gone into the interior of the jungle of the plateau. And then we see Tarzan. And trapeze. 
Like it is literal trapeze work. Like they hired some trapeze artist. They took the trapeze. They they made fake vines down the side of the trapeze. They had the trapeze guys' partners dress up as apes and do other trapeze stuff. On one hand, I am impressed. And on the other hand, it didn't fool anybody, but it did move the story forward. It was fun. It was yeah. It's it's funny in retrospect, and I don't know how well received it was at the time, but um, yeah, yeah, it was interesting that they went through the effort to get that done. Yeah, I I think so, at some points in the film, the swinging from vines looks really good. Yeah, and at other points in the film, it looks like a guy swinging on a trapeze. Um, the, that's the very... introduction of Tarzan would have been one of the latter. Like it was literally a trapeze. Like they they didn't even try to hide it. Yeah, um, I don't know. People loved the film, though. You asked how it was received, and uh, I'm just looking at the stats here, and it was their biggest film of that that time. Um, and uh, yeah, so it it people loved it, and yeah. judging by how many sequels there are to this. Because Weissmuller went on to make like 15, was it 15? Like, I don't know if he was in all of them, but they, there were like 15 Tarzan movies of, that were just part of this group of Tarzan films because there were other competing yep. Tarzan films, you know? But, um, I mean, this series with Weissmuller goes on. He plays Tarzan many more times. Um, and then somebody else takes over the role, but it's still like got Cheetah the Chimp and it's still got, yep. you know, it, so this particular series ran for a long time. It went into the fifties or sixties. Um, so that's a long time for a franchise yeah. back then, you know? Um, yeah. Okay. Let's keep going. What else do you got? Uh, so then there's Cheetah. Like, they introduce Tarzan, Cheetah comes in. They introduce Tarzan, they introduce his family, which is the people in ape suits. And then they introduce Cheetah, who, as it was portrayed, appeared to be a baby ape. Not a chimpanzee, which anybody today can, you know, kind of like, ah, obviously it's a... No. Like, one of the apes is carrying Cheetah, which is not a behavior spotted in the wild. It's like, apes don't keep pets. And no, like it was, it, it was kind of weird, but the thing that really sticks with me now, they're establishing the rapport between Tarzan and Cheetah, right? Like they're kind of ook ooking each other. And I just want to point out that Johnny Weissmuller roughhoused with Cheetah in a way I would not roughhouse with a chimpanzee today, if that makes sense. Like, I don't know if I... Perhaps I have an irrational fear of chimpanzees. Perhaps I think they are stronger than they actually are. Perhaps I think they're more, like, dangerous than chimpanzees can be. But, no, he's, like, shoving them around. He's giving them good, like, shoulder whacks and ook-ooks. And, like, it was a little concerning. I, I would be afraid of getting my arm ripped off by a chimpanzee. And to be clear, I'm not afraid to get my arm ripped off. Just by a chimpanzee would be a terrible way to lose an arm. I'm sure they were perfectly willing to endanger the actors in a lot of other ways. Yeah. Johnny, I want you to punch that chimpanzee. We'll get it on film. It'll be great. Nothing bad could possibly happen. Like, just cut him loose. 
I really want to focus in on the the jaguar. Jaguar? Cheetah. It was a cheetah. I thought it was a leopard, but I'm not sure. Sure. Let's go. Yeah, it was a leopard. But was it? No, it was a fucking dog. Like, I'm watching this. I sat there. I'm watching the scene. Like, they would show stock footage of the leopard cut to Tarzan. And then they show him jumping down on this. And they obscure the leopard's face. But if you watch it, this guy clearly just jumped off an embankment and started wrestling a dog and then pretended to kill it. Like, it was, again, possibly simultaneously both a high and a low point of cinema. (laughs) Um, I think that um, it was still better. So another character that comes back again and again in film Um, sort of one of these iconic characters that we might take on in the future is Hercules. And I wasn't that long ago that I watched one of the first Hercules films, you know, and, and again, it's more about the body. So they cast um, Steve Reeves, who was a bodybuilder as Hercules. And uh, he fights a lion, which is part of the Hercules, you know, legends, Greek mythology, but it was far less convincing than this, in my opinion, than this um, Tarzan fighting the leopard, uh, even though it was made, you know, 30 years later. So while maybe it didn't work for you as much, it worked a little bit better for me, I think. To be clear, it was not, it wasn't one of the points where the story was ruined because of it. I enjoyed it. Like, I watched it, I noted it, I paused, rewinded, and watched again to make sure I was correct. Rewound, sorry. Um, It didn't pull me out of the story, watching it. Like, it didn't break it for me. Um, I just thought it was a clever point of note. Like, look, look, that that Olympic swimmer is wrestling a dog. Okay, and when it wasn't a dog, when it was actually the leopard, um, I found a source here that says that the leopard, even the leopard wasn't a leopard. It was, in fact, a uh, jaguar um, because it was cheaper to import a jaguar from Mexico than it was to get a leopard from Africa, you know? Uh, And they do... So the film, this is one of the notes I copied out of the Wikipedia page. The film was shot at Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Studios. But as well as uh, Silver Springs, Florida... Uh, Goebbels Lion Farm in Thousand Oaks, California. So, you know, bear in mind, if we're going to get back to any Tiger King themes here, like, literally, they borrowed animals from this private zoo in Thousand Oaks, California. So anytime they had a real uh, real animal there, that probably is where it came from. Well, keep in mind, what's MGM's logo? What does the movie start with? Every I, MGM film start with. Yep. Even today, it starts with a lion in a circle, and you know that that's not some wild lion. That came from some, you know, lion farm, you know, somewhere. Yeah. Um, someone, I'm sure we have, you know, crazy amounts of film geeks out there. I'm sure someone knows the story behind the MGM lion. I mean, that must be a very storied, well-known lion. But, uh, yep, yep, okay. What else you got? As I see it, the rest of the story is developing about Jane, who is initially horrified by Tarzan. And there are some 
There are some screams that make a modern viewer uncomfortable. Are you um, talking? Is this going to turn into a hashtag me too kind of moment? It, watch it. Like, watch the scene where Tarzan steals Jane, pulls her off, and I guess he's trying to pull her into cover or whatever. But it was, yeah, it was creepy as hell. This lady is horrified by this guy. Is is, And I guess watching in the context of the film, like, there's a lot of this stuff that they, they don't go into. Tarzan is a feral child. He is a whatever you've already in 1932 by the time you're watching this film you've already been steeped in tarzan stories you already know who he is you already have an expectation of the character so there's a lot of stuff they don't need to talk about for the viewer to get in on this story right like a lot of stuff gets skipped right but he's just there and he sees jane and he steals jane and hides her in this branch cave nest thing Yep. Um, and she is horrified by him. And the next, I believe, half hour is her changing her mind and deciding that she likes Tarzan and deciding that she really likes Tarzan. Um, yeah. But the character never gets any more... De- like, Tarzan never gets any more developed. Like, he never really gets more... Well, what's interesting is Harry Holt which is one of the two, not her father, but the other, you know, um, great white hunter colonial yeah. guy. Did you know this? I didn't realize this at the time until like I saw other people writing about this, but Harry Holt was supposed to be her fiance. In the, well, we had just watched the other movie the week before and I, I, I recognized him as the same character, but in this story, they never established that. In this story, he had stopped shy of asking her out. Somehow she decided she liked Tarzan better. And, and again, in this story, like, I, again, he made some very proper advances. The, would it be possible that you could consider possibly seeing me as a suitor? Like, this very roundabout, indirect, passive. And Tarzan just fucking grabs her and pulls her into the cave in the tree, right? Like... In the other film, they established him from the beginning as her fiance. That was it. That was the end of their relationship. The rest was her developing a relationship with Tarzan. In this, she met this guy coming off the boat. She hung out with him a couple times. He kind of coyly asked if possibly, you know, in between lines about how much Africa sucks, if she could possibly ever consider, like, hanging out with him. And that was it. That was their relationship. And I I know, again, every viewer already has an expectation of that character. They've already seen 10 Tarzan films. They've already read the, possibly even read the book. But just watching this film from that, that's all the relationship I got. Future episodes of the podcast, I hope to have a female co-host on here. And I'd kind of like to get a female perspective on this. Yeah. Um, now, I know there would be two most modern women there would be some at the very least eye rolling over the you know scenes where they're like there's the humor of her of like of the porters bringing in all of the chests of stuff she brought with her to to go to africa (laughs) you know but you know that okay i i i i just know that would be on on the agenda but what i really want to know is like okay you got this guy and you got Tarzan. 
tell me, you know, what's the appeal with these two guys, you know? I, yeah, yeah, and again, I guess I'm, I don't feel qualified to talk about any of that. But if I was walking down the street, and a guy did to a woman what Tarzan did to Jane, I would attempt to stop him. Like, I just, like, just with, with no hesitation. Right. But yeah, yeah, the guy's getting punched. Like, okay, but keep in mind, just like when it comes to colonialism, yeah, I'm good that they left it in. Racism is endemic in colonialism to begin with. So to try to have a story about white colonial people in Africa around the turn of the century and not have it be racist would be the lying, you know? Yeah. So, and I feel the same way with the sexism. Here's a guy that grew up and his only model for how to treat females is what male gorillas do to female gorillas. Right. And if you burnished too much of that off, I'd be like, oh, give me a break if Tarzan was suddenly some Romeo, you know? So so two points about that. One, I feel like the colonials, again, it was sanitized in this. Like, the second they introduced that theme of the elephant graveyard, it's almost like it doesn't hurt anybody. But further, I bet neither Edgar Rice Burroughs nor the director or writer of the film did a lot of research on how gorillas act with each other, and I'm not claiming that I have. <laughs> like I'm not saying they fell very much into the trope of what they would expect gorillas behave like, but I'm betting. I'm just betting you don't fuck with a female gorilla. That's all I'm saying. I bet they can hold their own in a fist fight. Like, all right, let's just leave. Let's, let's just leave that aside for now. Okay. What we need to talk about is the elephant in the room, which isn't actually the elephants. It, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we need to get to the actual. Oh my God. I can't wait. Okay. <laughs> Um, so I'll introduce this one since you introduced the last couple. There is a point at which they encounter some of the natives for the first time that are neither, as I brought up earlier, neither video uh, film footage of actual African tribes, nor are they African-Americans playing Africans. They're, in fact, people in blackface. And they're dwarves in blackface. And, in fact, I had this moment of, are they are they portraying pygmies? And the film actually said, no, those aren't pygmies, they're dwarves. Like, they went out of their way. Okay, this, is, this blew my mind. Like, because it's like, first of all, normally at that time, you heard them referred to as midgets. So I'm like, oh, this film's actually progressive. It refers to them by the proper name dwarfs. And then I'm like, wait a minute, what the hell? Is there a whole tribe of dwarves? <laughs> like, <laughs> doing... like... So if they had tried to say they were pygmies, I'm like, okay, you know, there were tribes of pygmies in Africa, but they specifically rule out the possibility that they're pygmies. They say, yeah. no, they are in fact dwarves. And then I'm like, okay, so that layer of the onion's been peeled away. Now there are dwarves in blackface makeup. Like, because, like, uh, oh my God. It was, okay, so like, I remember when I watched Mad Max, the new Mad Max, which I had put off because I was afraid he was going to ruin his legacy, right? And every time things got cool, I would say to myself, oh my God, things couldn't get possibly cooler than this. And then they would. 
the second the cars were driving across the desert and there's a guy leaning off the front of one car playing guitar, you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. He could not possibly. And then flames shoot out of the guitar and you're like, oh my God, he has made it cooler. And this was like the offensive version of that where like every time you're like, no, this is seriously as bad as it can. Oh my God, no. No, like they keep pulling defeat out of the jaws of some kind of like terrible victory, right? Yeah, for me, this is where the movie goes completely off the freaking rails. It's like, it's like you had a really good adventure movie and suddenly it's comedy time. You know? It's like, yeah, like, I don't know, like... Let me get, let me, let me point this out. Like, I feel like the, oh, Tarzan falling in love with, or Jane falling in love with Tarzan story had gone on too long. I felt they dwelt on it. It was slowly paced. But I also realized this isn't necessarily a story for me. Like, maybe, maybe it is perfectly well paced for a 1930s action romance. And I am missing it. Whatever. I feel like they needed to do something. But like. Of the list of some things they could have done to maybe pull the story back into relevance, to me, like, a tribe of dwarves wearing blackface would not have been on my list of, like, oh, here's what you gotta do. That never would have even come to mind. I don't even understand why they chose... Why did they rule out the million other possible ways to reel the story back in how did they land on that? What room full of adult men spending money on this film greenlit this and said, you know what? That's genius. Like, how did they do? Oh, also, and they worshipped the ape god in the in the pit. They had a pit. And they were they were sacrificing the people they captured to this ape god in the yep. pit. Yep. And yep, it, yep, yep, yep. Um I don't even know how to disassemble this. This is so left field. Like, I I don't know, man. It's 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 bizarre, you know. And of course, I get that there's still a novelty when it comes to dwarves. You know, a lot of these same dwarf actors would show back up as the uh, Munchkins in The Wizard of Oz. Um, and stuff like that, but I don't get it, man. It was more comedic than exciting. Like not comedic in the haha, this is funny, but comedic in the cringy kind of like this, this is terrible kind of way. Um, right. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, look, if somebody had suddenly grabbed the steering wheel of the film and jerked it left, I would at least understand. Like, but it really just came out of nowhere, went in a different direction. I, I still don't know how to process this, but I don't know that you can. I got nothing. I got nothing. But, yeah. oh my God. Yeah. It had a lot of little people that went on to do a bunch of other stuff. The one that I will point out is Billy Curtis, who was in a ton of other things, including he is the dwarf in Clint Eastwood's High Plains Drifter. Oh, wow. Okay. He was also a, a professional wrestler. Not not even the weirdest thing today. 
there was one small moment where I actually gasped. God, it must have been a wrestler. It was somebody, the, the ape god that they were sacrificing people to was probably a good six and a half, seven feet tall. Like, he was a big dude in a gorilla suit, right? Right. And there's one part where Jane's father hits him with a torch. And I think to myself, how dangerous is it to get hit with a torch in a 1932 gorilla suit? Like, it, I wasn't concerned for the characters at all. But um, but as an actor, I they only had natural fibers or the most flammable of synthetics. Like, there's just no scenario where where they can save you inside of a gorilla suit if it decides to go up. And yeah, yeah, another another moment of like actor non safety I was concerned with. One last mention about uh, the dwarves, since you had mentioned Mad Max, Angelo Rossito was another one of the dwarves that had a very distinguished career, and he was a uh, famously the um, the dwarf from um, the movie Freaks as well as Master Blaster from That's... Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. I love... Do you know I can't get watch... I can't get young people to watch Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Let's save this. Let's save my Mad Max beliefs for another day. If we're around, if the podcast lasts and people are liking us and giving us five-star ratings... Why, why wouldn't they like two dudes giving, you know, talks about the rape themes of and post-colonial themes of the Tarzan film. What is there not to love about us? Right. So when all three people that actually end up listening to this podcast um, give us, uh, rate and hi, review hi, us Mom. in the iTunes store, maybe someday we'll be around long enough to cover the uh, Mad Max films and uh, you will be able to say your piece about Beyond Thunderdome. I think uh, that is... <sighs> Tarzan the Ape Man from 1932, which it may not be the best Tarzan film ever made, but uh, many people think has the best portrayal of Tarzan, which is Johnny Weissmuller, the Olympic swimmer. Any any last thoughts? Having not seen either of these films before we decided to watch them, I really appreciate how far making films had come i like how much they were able to zero in on a story that made sense for that hour and a half block of time and uh this was paced much better again with with painfully notable exception <laughs> towards the end like oh my god it's i can't stop thinking about them um they did such a better job they only showed you the parts of the characters you needed for the story they were showing. And I appreciated that. Oh, well, I should say like, and subscribe. And uh, if you have any uh, feedback, GC eight, the letter G, the letter C, the number eight podcast, all one word, GC eight podcast at gmail.com. Write us and let us know. And maybe we'll read your email on a future episode. But until then, this is Eric. This is Nat. Signing off. Thanks, guys.